0: Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Professor Alexander Mika Beritza, who is a professor of history and the Ruth Herring Noel Endowed Chair at Louisiana State University. And he's the author of The Mo- Napoleonic Wars A Global History. Um, this, is, this is an absolutely fascinating book. Uh, it was unlike any other history book I've read in the sense that it was just uh, global in its scope, and you're covering such an interesting period in history. Um, so first of all, can you give uh, my audience a little bit of background on yourself and on the Napoleonic Wars?
1: Yes. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It, it's, it's a delight to be here. Um, I'm originally from a, a country of Georgia, uh, and I usually tell um, people that, no, it's not the state of Georgia, right? It's the country of Georgia in Eastern Europe, a small uh, state sandwiched between uh, Russia and Turkey. With oh, a rather complex and uh, diverse and turbulent history, uh, but as it is m- most small nations, it is oftentimes kind of lost in, in on the pages of history. And of course, uh, when I embarked on on this career to become a professional historian, uh, I've always wanted to see you know where my my people kind of fit in the larger scheme of things. Uh, And I was oftentimes frustrated, uh, especially working on the revolutionary Napoleonic era, that the huge transformations that this period witnessed in Caucasus were not properly addressed. And so the immediate cause and kind of spark to write this book was desire to kind of wrong, to correct the wrong. But it also kind of then grew from their... um, to to get a better understanding of the field, because Napoleonic era is one of the most written historical periods. Um, There are thousands and thousands of volumes. In fact, um, Napoleon is probably the most written about historical figure, period. Um, The last estimate was that at least three, maybe 400,000 volumes have have been written just about him. Uh, So there has to be a really good reason to write another book about Uh, this topic. And my um, gradually my realization was that almost everything that has been written about this period is written from the French and British points of view and focused on the great transformations taking place inside Europe. And that is perfectly worthwhile enterprise, but I thought that it offers a very narrow snapshot of the period because Napoleonic, revolutionary Napoleonic mom, uh, 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 period is the moment when we see the modernity setting, and not just in Europe, but gradually extending to various parts of the world. It, it changes the trajectory uh, uh, that many of these world regions followed. Um,
0: and, and I thought a, a fresher study was needed. To, to flesh that out, and you know what, what I appreciated, uh, you know, as like an American of Indian origin, is that y- y- like uh, you had almost a chapter in the book that was just dedicated to how the Napoleonic Wars um, impacted, you know, the expansion of British rule in India, and also about obviously um, the, the impact on the Americas from the Louisiana Purchase onwards. I, I'm curious, by the way, how uh, how it's possible that so many volumes about Napoleon have been written. I think Andrew Roberts said that there's been one, on average, one new book about Napoleon a day since. He died. Uh, yeah. How, <laughs> oh how, yeah. How, even, how, how, are, how are there? How are there possibly that many Napoleonic scholars? Um, well, uh, it, it's, it's a it, it's
1: a very enticing field. Um, I, I compare Napoleon, and uh, you told me that the video will be recorded, right? So you see the uh, the the wall behind me, which has uh, parts of the British uh, propaganda, part of the French propaganda, and of course the gift from my students. Napoleon's cutout, but oftentimes compared Napoleon to a siren. And because for those who first approach the shores of Napoleonic history, they are drawn by the lure of that sweet song of Napoleonic legend, right? That the vision of a romantic kind of titan, the, the Prometheus who's thought to bring about change and was ultimately uh, defeated and exiled to a rock in the middle of nowhere. Um, and, and I think Napoleonic legend exercises uh, such a lure that there is always uh, uh, enough people interested in it to write about it, but, but it has a downfall uh, or kind of side effect, and that is um, most of what is written is written uh, uh, on, on, on Europe uh, for, uh, for linguistic reasons. For example, to write the books of global nature, global historical narrative, you need to have Diversity of uh, uh, language skills uh, that includes not just the French and British, which by now is taken for granted, but Spanish and German and Russian, and in, if you expand your narrative even further to the east, then you have to involve the Ottoman and and, and Iranian historical traditions as well, right? Um, and and of course that is a is a colossal challenge, and I, th- I think that is oftentimes pushes people away from such a, a narrative, um, and also that. The events in Europe itself uh, in, in in this period are of such colossal scale, right? So we talk about the battles that involve, uh, for example, at Borodino, there are a quarter million troops at Leipzig, there are well over half a million troops fighting for the for the future of Europe. Uh, that, by comparison, uh, you know, let's say dealing with events in uh, in Russo-Iranian war where you have on average ten to 15,000 men engaged, it kind of, not sexy enough, right? <laughs> not, not, not big enough. <laughs> um, so I think that also uh, uh, plays a role. And, and the, the charisma of these great in, uh, personalities that were engaged also kind of skews it towards Eurocentric narrative. And that's exactly the point that I, I was trying to make in the book is that that should not be the reason to to avoid our discussion in elsewhere. And uh, as you pointed out, um, for, for India, this is the moment of, of tremendous importance and not to include the developments in, in, in India under the leadership um, of British East India Company led by Richard Wellesley from 1798 to 1805, right? These seven years are of crucial importance because in many respects, the foundation for what will be the Raj, right, is, is late exactly at this time. Uh, and same applies to, let's say, extending our narrative to North America or South America, where, you know, the, this period saw the the collapse of the Spanish imperial rule and the emergence of a new political reality that will continue to reverberate and kind of affect us to the present day, right? The, 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 the fact that we have such a political uh, uh, kind of, a, Political reality of, of independent nation states from Mexico down to Argentina all are uh, the the you know part of the legacy um, of, of the Napoleonic period.
0: Can, can, can you talk more about the impact of the uh, Napoleonic Wars on India? Um, wh- why 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 was it so crucial for the British East India Company?
1: Now, the, of course, the English presence um, in in India. Um, predates the revolutionary period and by the start of the Revolutionary Wars, and I remind the listeners, the French Revolutionary War started in April of 1792 and Britain joined the war in 1793. Uh, so by then, British East India Company had already uh, established presence in, in India, especially in the northeastern part of it in, in Bengal. Uh, and of course, India. Uh, oftentimes, people forget just how huge and how diverse and how populous this this uh, subcontinent is. And notice that I use the term subcontinent, not region, because <laughs> again, uh, it's it's enormous in, in scale. In fact, we can we you know the estimates uh, usually point that India at this time has a population of well over 120 million people. Uh, so and this would have been a, a huge area uh, for or huge area for for the british as market for their goods but also as a source of the goods for their own commerce and we know that uh, in the revolutionary wars there was a vibrant trade going on uh, that in in many in, in many respects sustained the industrial, the the nascent industrial revolution in, in Britain. So, f- from the British point of view, India is a crucial asset. Or at least the presence in India is a crucial asset, but it is an asset that, from the British point of view, has is is constantly under threat from other uh, powers, uh, both local, such as, for example, Mughal Empire, until it experienced the decline in the mid eighteenth century, and then the Maratha Confederation that. Uh, and, and external threats, uh, most notably uh, the French who've been kind of nibbling at their heels all through the 18th century. And so the, what, what to me, the, the, the interesting aspect of this is not necessarily the actual threat that existed, but it's the perceptions of, the, of threat that uh, Britain saw, the British officials saw. Not all of them, for example... Uh, when we look at 1798, 1799 period, um, you have some British officials, such as Granville, who was a foreign secretary, arguing that the threat, direct threat, to British presence in India is over, uh, is, is exaggerated and kind of embellished, and that Britain should focus its efforts on confronting France in Europe. And then you have colonial officials. Of course, the uh, the British East India Company Officials uh, steadfastly arguing that the threat is real, that French are coming. And in fact, if you read the letters of uh, Richard Wellesley, who is appointed as the Governor General of British East India Company in 1798, he speaks constantly of this um, French threat as if it is real, as if, as if it is uh, imminent. Even though we know uh, that France was not. Um, in in a position to directly threaten the positions, uh, the British positions in India at this time, right? The French hands are tied in in Europe, but nonetheless, the perception is important because it is on uh, under this pretense of confronting the French threat that Wellesley then embarks on on empire building, and in the book I refer to Wellesley as probably the most Napoleonic of this British statesman of this period because his vision is. It is that of an empire in India, which can be built um, within the context of confronting the f- uh, this alleged French threat, and so we see the uh, the the wars, the comp- the campaigns that Wellesley uh, cont- uh, waged against the local native uh, Indian states that uh, refused to trot the British line. So I remind you, of the the war between Anglo uh, the uh, the British and the Mysore, right? The the infamous. Uh, storming of Seringapatam and the killing of its ruler of Tipu Sultan or the uh, the subjugation of Nizam of Hyderabad who is forced to accept this uh, subsidiary relationship with the British or the confrontation ultimately between the British forces and the Maratha Confederation during which in 1803 for example you have that famous battle of Assay where uh, Arthur Wellesley, right, the Richard's younger brother and future greatest Uh, British uh, military commander of the age, Duke Wellington, uh, distinguished himself. And so these policies of of, uh, using the French uh, scare to impose the British kind of interest on the local states are extremely successful in that by 1805, much of southern and eastern Indian subcontinent is on the British um, uh, rule. Now, different shades of it, you know, direct or indirect rule, but nonetheless, it's under the British influence. And that process will only continue in the subsequent years, so that by 1819 um, you see the extension of the uh, British authority in the north to areas like Oud uh, in, 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 in northern parts of the subcontinent, and of course the encroachment on the Maratha territory, um, which will be ultimately right, consumed by 1819. 18- uh, 1918 in uh, early 20s, and hence we see the establishment of the British um, uh, rule in India.
0: Is having your, uh, you know, like a global empire, a bunch of colonies, is that helpful when you're engaged in a war with another power? I mean, in some sense, you maybe you're like I don't know, more diversified, but in another, you had to, as you just said, you had to, the British had to divert resources and attention to. Um, defending their stakehold in India, um, and you know, even in World War II, Churchill has to worry about uh, the Singapore. Uh, Singapore is taken over by the Japanese. So, uh, it, it, when you're fighting a war, is it good to have a lot of colonies, or is it bad for you? No, of course, uh, having
1: res- having colonies means having access to resources. Resources, both in terms of manpower, but also resources in terms of commodities, natural uh, um, uh, resources that sustain your economy, your war effort. I mean to kind of deviate from maybe Napoleonic era, uh, you know, when we talk about the, that other great war, because Napoleonic wars for much of the 19th century was the great war, only to be superseded by World War One. But think about the British imperial involvement in World War One. When we talk about Britain at war, we really mean the empire. And it's, it needs to be pointed out that more Indian troops served in that war uh, than the actual British troops. And certainly, you know, the expeditions to, for example, Iraq involved thousands of Indian forces. Uh, so that, is, you know, having an, an empire certainly uh, helps in, 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 in conducting the war. Uh, and and that is true in the Napoleonic uh, period because the trade that uh, Britain uh, conducted both with India and with China was um, was extremely lucrative, and there are uh, you know excellent studies done on the extent of this trade and on the on the value of the uh, uh, and the volume and value of of the commerce uh, that was conducted uh, uh, with 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 Asia which is is one of the crucial uh, um, parts of the British economic uh, endurance kind of uh, you know, re- resilience because think, uh, in 18 you know once Napoleon consolidates his control of the continent, we, we know that in 1806 he embarks on the system that we refer to as continental blockade, uh, which uh, was designed to isolate the British uh, or cut them uh, off from from the uh, continent in 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 terms of their ability to sell goods. Uh, the one one of the reasons why Britain was able to survive this uh, uh, economic war was precisely because it could rely on its colonial presence, uh, on rely on markets elsewhere, and of course uh, uh, have the ability, the naval capacity to 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 ensure that its commercial routes, its lifelines continue to sustain its war effort. Uh, um, and the, the reverse is true for France. And, and that is one of the crucial uh, stories of the, Nepal, the revolutionary Napoleon era is the collapse of the what we call first French empire. France loses, loses virtually every possession it has outside Europe that is in India, that is in you know, broadly in the Indian Ocean, certainly the Caribbean, and of course, you referred to the loss of Louisiana uh, um, in, in 1803, 1804, right? So that means that uh, by comparison, France finds itself in a much weaker position in the years to come. And that um, later on will kind of sustain this narrative of restoration of the national uh, uh, grandeur, uh, which will justify, for example, colonial enterprise or colonial projects that France will will unleash in Algiers in 1830, and then sub-Saharan Africa in, in, in later periods, right, as a part of that, the reconstruction of the imperial uh, construct.
0: Did the continental system contribute to Britain having uh, the Industrial Revolution first? There's a book um, by this uh, developmental economist, uh, uh, Joseph Studwell, called How Asia Works, and in it he makes a case that um, be, uh, these, uh, Asian tigers in the late 20th century, they, they imposed a bunch of tariffs, um, whose main purpose was to enforce export discipline so that it would, uh, help the, their nascent industries, I guess, car making in, uh, Korea, for example, um, it would give them a leg up so that they could build the uh, know-how within the country to manufacture these things. And then, then they could get rid of the tariffs Did this kind of just artificially happened with the continental system. I mean, to what extent are the Napoleonic Wars and the industrial revolution, uh, linked, mm-hmm.
1: Um, so in in the book I devote uh, as an entire chapter to uh, what I call war through other means and that is the the economic side of the war in fact I wish I had the more more space to devote to in fact uh, you know that's one of the topics I'm working on today uh, or nowadays and that is to uh, to explore the economic dimensions of the war uh, which usually is ignored even though they are, it's absolutely instrumental to it uh, and the the, there are a couple of things to kind of address right away. And one is that uh, industrialization began in Britain before the war. Uh, we know that the, the the elements of the industrial development are already present in, Brit- in Britain in 1760s, 70s, 70s. Certainly by 1780s, uh, Britain is far more industrialized than uh, Euro- the continental powers. Uh, the the second point is that France had prerequisites for industrialization, right? And there is a fascinating new study on, on why the industrial revolution didn't, play, didn't take place in France in in 1760s, 70s, and 80s like it did in Britain. And, and, and but that's a separate kind of topic. What, however, uh, once the industrial revolution took off in in Britain. Uh, it gave the British an enormous advantage uh, uh, in, in terms of their uh, economic parity, in terms of their economic or financial events, uh, uh, um, relations with, with the continent. And it left, therefore, the continental powers with, in, in, in this position where the only way they really can respond to uh, to the British threat or economic right, threat is by, as you pointed out, uh, creating barriers, uh, tariffs. Napoleon understood that um, opening up market, that letting the British goods flow, will be absolutely catastrophic to French interests. Not to mention to the industrial, kind of the the nascent in, 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 in industries in in the territories that he controlled, which is why uh, he comes up with this continental system. And I want to, and that's what kind of my pet peeve, and that I I am very. Uh, adamant about distinguishing between continental blockade, which was uh, a a policy designed to deal with the British commerce, and a continental system, which was a far more encompassing uh, policy that Napoleon pursued towards creating uh, a a new reality, political economic reality in Europe. Uh, Later on, on St. Helena Island when he's exiled, he does talk about his desire to create... Uh, United States of Europe, effectively an early version of the European Union. Uh, but we you know we we have to bear in mind that that Euro- Napoleon's vision of European Union was an imperial construct where France was supreme. But within that European Union, so to speak, right? Napoleon did want to use the tariffs, the protective uh, barriers as a way of promoting industrial growth. and that's where Napoleonic Wars is interesting because, uh, on one hand, the fighting, the military devastation that takes place in places like Spain, like Germany, like Russia does affect the local manufacturing, does affect local industries. But on the other hand, Napoleon, by creating this kind of vacuum or the, the bubble, not vacuum, but bubble around cer- uh, uh, certain areas of, uh, of Europe, tried to promote industries in, within the safety so that the British couldn't compete with them directly. And we see the kind of haphazard impact of, of his policies. There are some areas where it worked, and the in the post-war period, places like Belgium, Netherlands, southern Germany, northern France, northern Italy, the industrial development took off. And but also, but on the other hand, there are all areas where the war had a far greater impact, and the continental system with its restrictions Actually, delayed the industrial development rather than promote it.
0: I was just looking at this paper um, from the economist Darren Asimoglu. I think it's called "The Consequences of Radical Reform," and in it, he was making the case that. Um, if you look at the places that uh Napoleon conquered and you know reformed within the Napoleonic codes um I, I, his claim is that after 1850 all of them they all experienced uh, more economic growth in the places that he didn't conquer um and, and, and I think he says in the paper that there were no cases where there was a they couldn't identify any negative effects um from uh from uh from this i I, I wonder if you um agree or, or, or was this uh was this just uh unalloyed good
1: I think um uh, it, it, uh, I think it's a general, it's a it's too generalized kind of statement, and and if you dig deeper, I think you'll see a more complex reality. One thing is that many of the of the areas that this uh, the author was referring to as having the economic growth and all uh, right, they had the pre- uh, preconditions for economic prosperity for industrialization before Napoleon showed up. So usually, uh, the case studies for that are low countries, right? Belgium, Dutch Republic, um, the S- Rhineland, the northern Italy areas around Turin and Milan. But those were already high, you know, urbanized, developed uh, uh, regions that were on the way to to industrialization. In fact, in those areas, you can argue to. to and, and many of my colleagues have done that the Napoleonic Wars actually hampered the industrial growth because Napole- you know because of the direct effect of the war, right the fighting and the destruction, but also because of the uh, taxes, requisitioning, occupational costs that the war brought on these regions. However, if you look beyond this kind of uh, and, and that's where in, in the book I what I'm arguing is that the impact of Napoleon needs to be, uh, needs to be quant qualified, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, you have to approach it very carefully because it, it depends on particular region and on the duration of the French presence. So the areas that I just mentioned stayed under French control for much longer. For example, you know, in Belgian case, we talk about from 1794 until 1814, right? So There's a much longer duration in time. Compare that, for example, to Calabria in southern Italy, where the French arrive in 1806, uh, they face vociferous resistance from the local population, uh, and they really can't overcome it until 1810, and then in 1814 they are gone. So how much can you accomplish in four years? Or think about Poland, let's say, or in Spain, right? So there is far shorter duration of the Napoleonic impact, and there is only so much you can accomplish in that few years. Um, uh, and so that's where I would, I would argue is that, yes, Napoleon, the introduction of Napoleonic reforms uh, in many cases were uh, helpful in changing the system. Now, what I mean by Napoleonic reforms, this is usually centralization of authority. This is professionalization of administration. This is enforcement of new administrative uh, kind of, uh, 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 institutions, and of course, as you mentioned, the new legal framework. Napoleonic code was uh, you know this transformation, this revolutionary uh, change uh, in, 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 through a legal code. But how long did they stay? That's the question, right? What's the actual impact on the ground? And that's where you see, once you scratch the surface, that the impact is not as uniform. Um, and, and, and much,
0: much dependent on the willingness of the
1: local population to accept this change.
0: And then, uh, you know, in a previous life, you were a lawyer. I'm wondering how that experience uh, or, or how, how that background has shaped your understanding of the impact of these reforms <laughs> and these, uh, uh, these codes. And I have more especially to the question of uh, there, there's a, a like a perennial debate about whether institutions and laws that have been shaped kind of naturally through tradition and through history are better or ones that are um, ones that are more technocratic based on more rational principles. Um, wh- wh- whether that's preferable, I-, I I wonder what kinds of lessons you draw um, on questions like that. So that that's a
1: it's a, a complex question, but it's an interesting question to ponder. And I, in my own courses when I teach students, I usually ask to look at what Napoleon tried to implement, right, on, on the legal side of it with Napoleonic Code. Look, go through the provisions of Napoleonic Code, and there is a lot, uh, that. Can be qualified as as progressive for this period, right? If we set aside um, important issues on which Napoleon was not as uh, as as, uh, as progressive, for example, in the issue of the equality of the women or the issue of the proper, you know, kind of uh, property rights of of, of 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 certain, you know, children born out of wedlock and all that. But if we look at at some of the core elements of the um, Napoleonic regime of oh, Napoleonic uh, uh, reforms, they are quite progressive. However, is progress always a good thing? That's, I usually kind of pose the question to students. And usually the answer is, oh yeah, of course, progress is a good thing. But what if the progress comes in an intrusive manner and it changes the way of life that you are used to, you're comfortable with? Uh, then the question becomes whether the progress is actually uh, a good thing. And what I mean by this is that in places like Spain or Italy or in Poland, Napoleonic reforms, as progressives might argue, right, they were, uh, they, they threatened to bring about more centralized, therefore more intrusive power of the state. It threatened to bring about more effective tax collection, more effective uh, administration. Uh, uh, it it effectively uh, threatened to uh, create a system that held citizens more accountable. All right. Now, today we all like to complain about taxes and about the government over rich, right? So why are we kind of surprised that people in early eighteen hundreds would have been complaining about this? In in some of it, in, uh, some of it might strike as quite quite you know. Um, Unusual, you know, unusual, but you know, in a weird way is that, for example, one of the great legacies of Napoleon is the uh, vaccination program. I think that's especially relevant in, in the last two years, right? The, uh, the government's efforts to vaccinate, to boost and all this. And even today, we know that people were resisting it, right? Now, Napoleon uh, promoted a great vaccination program for smallpox, and he started with, the own, with his own child. He, uh, he vaccinated his troops and then kind of rolled this program uh, uh, to, to the territories that he occupied. But in many areas, the uh, people resisted vaccination because it represented government overreach, because it represented government kind of telling people you got to vaccinate. Uh, and um, there were part, you know, parts of uh, Europe where people suspected that vaccination was part of the government's uh, a kind of secret plan to control them, which is uh, which uh, which will strike us as a very modern thing, right? <laughs> the conspiracy theories uh, uh, today were not you know are not that original.
0: <laughs> today, there's like a big discrepancy between how Americans and Europeans see the role of the state. You know, Europeans are much more comfortable with it. Is the origin of that that they did have a figure like Napoleon um, centuries ago who instilled? A uh, more centralized uh, and uh, I guess more uh, more administrative form of government.
1: Partly, uh, of course, um, we, we have to bear in mind that unlike the United States, let's say, or to to a great degree, uh, Britain, uh, continental European history is centers around strong authoritarian monarchical rule. You know, here we see kind of dichotomy, of, for example, of the French absolutism with the British. Uh, uh, parliamentarian, more you know, limited monarchical development. Or further east we go, right? In 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 Prussia, for example, we see the development of again absolutist tendencies in the Cameralist system. Or further to to the east in Russia, of course, the autocratic uh, monarchical government that uh, uh, predates, of course, Napoleon. So that, that there is a long history of a of a strong uh, statist approach to it. Now, what Napoleon tried to do is he tried to make the state efficient. And in that, he was, I mean, that that's actually one of the most fascinating things about him is kind of increasing the centralization, the efficiency, the enforcement of the state. In France, we, for example, see that after the turbulent years of revolution, Napoleonic centralization and the enforcement Completely changed the relationship between the you know the people and the state, uh, uh, and that includes, for example, in 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 areas like tax payments, right? Tax collection, which uh, increased exponentially as Napoleon actually set up the system that held people accountable for it, um, and and that made uh, that made I think the Continental. Uh, Powers so the, the continental societies are far more willing to accept the role of the state. Now there is another kind of you know fold to this in this, and that goes that after Napoleonic period, right? Once the war is over and now we are the period of peace and will last several decades, you know, until eighteen fifties with the Crimean War and then with the bigger conflicts of sixties and seventies. But nonetheless, you know, we have you know about four decades of peace. Well. We have to deal with this kind of gorilla, 800-pound gorilla in, in the room, and that is the British industrial might. And one of the ways we can deal with that is, is by maintaining the protective barriers of, of tariffs and by increasing the role of the state in the economic development. And here, your listeners can read up on, for example, theory—you know—the economic theories that Friedrich List. Uh, was the great proponent of, which indeed championed the role of the state in promoting economic prosperity, in promoting industrialization. And many European states followed exactly that model.
0: The, another theory about how the economics here proceeded is maybe the public choice theory model from like Mansell Olson, where, you know, he observed that, for example, um, after World War II, economic growth rates in Germany and uh, Japan were increased by a lot. And his theory is just that you got rid of these old institutions and um, old institutions and um, uh, these uh, built-in incentives that the old system had. And then maybe similarly in uh, continental Europe, w- w- Napoleon gets rid of these guilds, he gets rid of um, these uh, titles of nobility and these arcane um, arcane systems. To, to, to what extent is uh, public choice theory also a good model of uh, what was happening at the time?
1: Yes, and and that's, I think, yeah, I, w- I would agree with that to, to a great deal in, in that, Ultimately uh, you know I, I usually end my lectures uh, in my Napoleonic history courses by saying that ultimately Napoleon is is a loser in that he lost the war he lost the empire he ended the life on that godforsaken place in right in in, in Atlantic but the impact that he left is is stays with that in that the, the in the post-napoleonic period the european powers have to grapple with his legacy right even though right his changes for example are uh, reversed in in italy where you know he, his united kingdom of italy is is abolished and pre-napoleonic arrangements are restored even though we see restoration of the ruling dynasties that he overthrew um, we cannot reverse the clock. We cannot simply go back to pre-Napoleonic era and, and, and pretend that it didn't happen. Right. So you have to accept the, uh, the changes that he introduced. Now, the question is to what degree you will accept. And here again, we can look at the kind of gradation. And there are some areas like in uh, southern and western Germany where Napoleon, and, and certainly in the Netherlands and in Belgium and in northern Italy where the impact was so pronounced that it stays, that it will be simply impossible to turn the clock back. But in other areas, it was easier to accept some changes and then reverse many others. So, for example, we know that in, 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 in places like in Poland or in southern Italy or in, or in Spain, uh, the Napoleonic impact uh, in terms of that of, of 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 the changes of the old regime, uh, was was far less pronounced than, than in in the in the core areas of, of Europe, and so. Uh, but overall, I think you're right in that Napoleon represented such a major blow to the old regime that it simply couldn't stay the way it was. It had to reinvent itself, and reinvent it did. Right And in this post-Napoleonic era. Uh, and and uh, here I, I do want to point out that oftentimes we think about this post-Napoleonic reconstruction as this conservative, you know, reaction as this arch conservatives and you know the reactionaries. Um, but we have to bear in mind that majority of these conservatives were not against the change. Right? Even Metternich, who is usually perceived as this arch conservative, uh, you know, <laughs> villain. Um, he is not averse to change. He's averse to revolutionary pace of the change. And so here in the post-Napoleonic era, well, these great powers were willing to accept reforms and changes that came at, 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 gradually you know, in a controlled environment. And that's essentially what, what we see uh, taking place in in the decades after Napoleon is gone.
0: That, that's very interesting because you know um, Robert Conquest has uh, uh, has these set of laws, and his second law is that any institution that is not explicitly um, right wing will eventually become left wing. And I don't know; it seems that, like the the course of Europe after Napoleon uh, is similar. Like you have um, you have a bloody revolution, you have this person who uh, causes a massive amount of uh, death and war, and then um, at, at least if you're trying to make the monarchical case, right, you'd say, oh, this is a result of these revolutions ideals obviously monarchy is better we should go back to the old ways you you uh, like maybe intellectually you think that that view would get vindicated uh, at least at the time uh, but it seems like no the, even even given the immediate consequences of uh, the French Revolution and Napoleon um eventually kind of the system he he, he and the revolution created, um, endured, and caught on the rest of Europe. Uh, do, do you have any comments on like uh, this this move in history where things, maybe left-wing is not the right word, but uh, uh, and in modern is almost a tautology, but uh, you, you, uh, maybe you see what I mean. Yes, I think the the way I, I look at it is, and the way I kind of um, discuss
1: it with my students is that I look at what the revolution promised, and at its simplest, right? The revolution was about... Quest for equality, and that quest can be then kind of you know interpreted in, uh, in in variety of ways. It can be a political equality with the suffrage, voting, and all. It can be economic equality, social equality, gender equality. All this, right? And and so to me, the revolution and Napoleon, and then of course the post-Napoleonic period is. Not necessarily this you know left wing right wing or liberal conservative, you know, we can use whatever terminology you would like to, but to me it's it's the quest for these uh, evolving notions of equality. Uh, so for example, when we talk about the politics, right, the political side of this equality, we know that revolution right, produces remarkable documents in August of 1789 with Declaration of Rights of Men and the Citizen uh, proclaiming in the in this very first article that men are born and remain free and equal in their rights. That's a very aspirational, very idealistic kind of statement. But it's also a problematic statement because it's so vague. What does it mean equal in their rights? And what does it mean to be men, right? Now in French, the, the, the term is homme, but homme, uh, even though it was used in this context of men, can be interpreted as being as human beings. And so here then, The story of revolution in Napoleon is the story of the struggle of various groups for the political equality because the revolution, after the Declaration of Rights of Man, interpreted this provision as saying, well, uh, it's equality of those men who are self-reliant, who are well-off, that cannot be influenced. So Therefore, we're going to institute property qualification and let only affluent vote. Well, what about those who are below the threshold, right? And so you see then that struggle during Revolution Napoleonic era leading to, for example, Napoleon proclaiming universal male suffrage. After Napoleon is uh, overthrown, that system is reversed to a a much stricter property qualification. Uh, And then you will see again universal male suffrage coming back in 1848 and staying part of French political narrative. And the same... um, and a quest for political equality can be then traced in many of these other European uh, powers that were affected by by Napoleon or even in Britain. I mean, think about the British electoral uh, reforms of 1832, the Great Reform Bill, or 1860s and 1880s. It is also part of that quest for greater political equality. Same then, you know, if we can uh, expand our view, what about then social economic equality, Right. What about the treating our you know, fellow citizens in, in, in more equitably when it comes to wages, when it comes to working conditions, when it came, comes to what we now call the you know, welfare kind of social welfare system? Because these are the ideas the revolutionaries were grappling with, Napoleon was grappling with, and of course, in post-Napoleonic period, they all were trying to find a way to uh, uh, to answer these challenges. So in 1848, for example, French socialists um, tried to find a, a solution to the existing problem of the socio-economic inequality by setting up uh, what they referred to as national workshops, effectively a state-subsidized system where people could register and and, and drew sustenance from the state, and it is this time when we see the kind of the uh, the concept of right to work come to uh, come uh, you know come in, into the public uh, uh, discussion. Uh, so that's how I look at it, and then, then again we can look at the gender equality, we can look at the issues, for example, of slavery that is
0: at its at its uh, simplest about the equality of human beings. And how is your um, how 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 did growing up in the former Soviet Union how did how does that shape your um, <laughs> views about a, a sort of idealistic uh, uh, you know a revolution for equality and then um, deferring to a sort of enlightened despot um, <laughs> uh, how 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 is how that shaped your views here? Well, um, my kids, um, I have two kids, I have two boys, and the oldest one is
1: already reaching that age when he's studying this modern history and. And one of the other day, he uh, kind of came to realization that I was born and raised in the evil empire. So he was quizzing me about <laughs> what, what it was like, uh, Father, <laughs> to be on the other side. I'm like, well, thank you, son. Um, I think, it, of course, it, it has a direct impact because I was born and raised in the Soviet Union. And um, my father was a critic of the Soviet system. And he, uh, I remember him as a, as, as a young man. Uh, uh, in back in the early 80s kind of listening to, secretly listening to the broadcasts of, of Voice of America or BBC, mm. which were kind of muffed, but uh, he would still listen. And, I, and this is some of my early kind uh, of you know, memories as a child when my father would sneak out and kind of secretly listen to a a, a, rig, a radio receiver that he he, he fashioned. Uh, and, and I think that kind of imperial, you know, that experience within imperial entity, uh, it, it does, it, it did have an impact on me, um, uh, and and certainly shaped me because Soviet Union collapsed when I was becoming, you know, my my character, my, my kind of my my personality was being uh, uh, forged in nineties, and I lived through the the debris of the so post Soviet era with this. Economic devastation with its civil strife, with its economic collapse. So, uh, in that sense, I, I, in many respects, I can relate to, to those, to that generation that lived through the Napoleonic era, saw the collapse of the empires, and then lived through the post-imperial, kind of post-Napoleonic era, which was a period of economic turbulence, economic uh, stagnation in many parts of Europe, um, uh, not to mention the. The civil strife that revolution Napoleon unleashed in many parts of, of Europe. So I think, you know, for example, you know, just if nothing else, I would uh, now t- oftentimes tell students that, you know, living through the '90s in in, in Georgia was d- grappling with basic necessities such as standing in line for bread for two or three days, kind of waiting for a loaf, a piece of you know, a loaf of bread. And uh, you know when I talk about the French experiencing, for example, in you know, during revolution, this hardship and trying to uh, really find the sustenance and, and seek out, uh, like me, pieces of bread in in various bakeries, um, uh, I, I could, on some level, can could relate to their misery, right? Could relate to their frustration.
0: I guess another aspect of uh, this this conflict is. Um yeah, uh, so you know, I, I know very uh, little about history, and which is why it was very fun to uh, read this book and to, I, I guess, venture forth and um, learn more about your history through the podcast. But one of the things that's um, interesting to me um, is that um, uh, it seems that there's like these uh, punctuated equilibrium in international relations, and um, in uh, you know, um, uh, you know, you have these long periods of peace, and then you have these periods where there's massive wars, massive death, borders get reshuffled, I guess, f- from the Seven Years' War to the Napoleonic Wars, and then from there to World War I. Um, you, and then, you know, maybe we can draw that line to today, where since World War II, we've had peace in Europe, and then now we have the conflict in Ukraine. Well, well Is this a pattern you see? or And if you do, what is the explanation? <laughs> well i
1: mean if we look at the conflict in ukraine and that's the conflict that uh, you know that has a direct relevance to me in in, in because it's part and parcel of the uh, russian imperial project uh, that you know in many respects this conflict doesn't start in february of 2022 or, or in 2014 when russia took over uh, crimea and in the eastern provinces of ukraine but to me it starts in 2008 when we had a war in between Russia and Georgia, uh, for that, for that very reason, right of, of 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 the countries of the group of people seeking a, a course of development that was that is different from the one that the Russian, uh, you know, government uh, has envisioned for them. Uh, so, to so that's where I see, and I mean, kind of. If you look at the rhetoric that comes from uh, from Moscow and then the statements by President Putin or his ministers, they all have the echoes of the 19th century great power politics, which, as far as I'm concerned, should stay part of history rather than the reality. Uh, as you pointed out, in the post-war II period, we, we went to great length to fashion uh, an international system uh, to prevent the very... Imperial so the the, the very uh, kind of great power politics that uh, dominated European you know the global uh, the global uh, development in the later half of the 19th century because look at effectively what Putin's uh, kind of grand strategy is 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 to carve out spheres of influence which would be uh, not unlike what Catherine the Great for example did in in the late 18th century when, in um, under her leadership, Russia partitioned uh, Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, coincidentally the very territory that uh, involves uh, the war today, right? Ukraine, the Baltic states. So that's where I, I see the kind of connections. Uh, and to me, it is absolutely paramount to, to contain these imperial uh, impulses and, and to ensure that the people have agency. That people have the ability to self-determine their fate. I mean, that's you know, kind of to go back to your or earlier question about my own experiences. I lived through the '90s. I lived through the uh, national liberation movement. I lived through this civil war. I lived through this, our own Georgian efforts to figure out who we are and what and what we want to be. Uh, it, it, but that's exactly the issue, and it's, it should be our decision, you know, as as a group of people uh, to to figure out whether we want to be a Western nation, uh, whether our ideals are more attuned to European, or whether we would like to seek closer relationship with Russia. Uh, we should not be punished uh, by an outside power for seeking uh, a, a course that disagrees with its, with, with its vision. And same applies for Ukraine, right? To me, that's the war in
0: Ukraine is, is, is about the agency of the Ukrainian people. What changed between before World War II and afterwards so that didn't change after the Napoleonic Wars? you would think that after the Napoleonic Wars that if the international norms could change they would have changed at that time to be like okay, no more great conquest but you know maybe it took till World War II And then what has caused uh w- w- what has caused this idea that you can have uh uh you know these kinds of uh you you can expand into what, what you perceive to be your zone of influence? Mm-hmm. Um, but so, how do you explain these two different uh, changes of norms?
1: But actually, the, the interesting thing is um, the immediate post-Napoleonic era saw the, the creation of a new international security system, a- absolutely remarkable. And there, my my uh, dear colleagues, like uh, Professor Beatrice de Graaf from the University of Utrecht, has written fascinating studies. And we talk about just the last two two years or so uh, a- exploring the impact of Napoleonic wars on crafting this this new international system. And the hallmarks of this system was indeed uh, the the, uh, balance of power, where these great powers sought to maintain certain parity. Uh, The goal of this was international cooperation to prevent political instability in Europe. So hence we see, for example, the uh, great power cooperation, the issues of suppression of revolutionary uh, cycles in the 1820s and 1830s. Uh, and and kind of to draw a parallel to World War I or World War II, one of the things that we oftentimes forget is that it is Napoleonic Wars that pioneered new mechanism of of dealing with the defeated power. And that is includes occupational regimes, that includes uh, development schedules of reparation payments. Right? Yes, defeated powers before, right? Um, had to pay war indemnities, but Napoleon, post-Napoleonic era saw a very different mechanism that involved occupation, that involved extraction of resources on the, uh, that is formalized and that is a kind of part of the coalition, uh, uh, which is very similar to what, for example, was done in, in post-war war II period. Um, you know, in 1815, for example, France is divided in the zones of occupation and European powers have occupational tr- you know, troops that are occupying specific regions, as a way of de uh, de Bonapartize France, just like in the post World War II, in right we have Germany dividing the zones of occupation with the policy of denazification.
0: Right? Why was this not implemented after World War One? The occupa- occupational part? Oh. was that just a massive oversight? Uh,
1: no, well, partly because um, um, I think we have to bear in mind that unlike uh, World War II, um, the war. Didn't directly reach Germany, right? It was mostly fought on the, in the northern, in northern France and in Belgium, uh, and, and and kind of the Rhineland area. But um, Germany itself remained intact for much of it, uh, and certainly uh, by the by the end of the war, it, the sheer exhaustion of of, of France and, and Britain and the collapse of Russia. The collapse of Austria and other powers certainly create the reality that was very different from po- in war in from 1945 when you have a grand alliance and that grand alliance is determined to to carve out the zones of occupation. Right? I mean, think about uh, kind of uh, United States in 1919 with its uh, uh, self imposed isolation is, is a very different entity from the 1945 United States that is uh, keen on on uh, um, you know. Keeping its presence in Europe, same applies for Russia. In 1919, is not is is imploding, while in 1945 it is uh, it is quite strong, um, or at least it's it, it will be on on you know, it's on its way to to recovering from the war. And It certainly has the military capacity to carve out a zone of occupation in Eastern Germany.
0: So uh, w- another question after the Napoleonic Wars is it seems that. Uh, so, you know, in the Seven Years' War in 1756, um, you know, France loses. It's not that long before the Napoleonic Wars happen. Um, and you know when France is fighting the Napoleonic Wars it's like gone through a bloody revolution it's a completely new regime so it, it, in many ways um it should be in a weaker position it seems just from the what, the politics of what's happening in France and it, and uh, obviously um France absolutely dominates uh, for like a decade um afterwards so what, what it, you know like I mean maybe in like financial terms you can think of like in business there's like private equity where um, if a firm has good potential, but it has like a lot of assets under management, but uh, I don't know, it, it just has bad leadership. You can have uh, another one that like buys it out and then <laughs> runs it better. Uh, so uh, is that is that the story here? Like why why did the uh, the uh, French military and uh, government just get seem to get so much uh, more effective between these two um, wars?
1: Yes, I think there again uh, uh, there are multiple threats that come together uh, in in. In, in this period, so one of them, for example, is the uh, France's ability to mass mobilize, uh, and and that is particularly uh, is clear in 1793-95 period when, in response to being confronted by the European coalition, France begins a system that we you know that we refer to as levée en masse, which involves mass mobilization of manpower. Uh, that involves development of a home front to support war effort. Uh, you know in in the military history, we oftentimes grapple with this kind of concept of limited war. Uh, and I think limited in the sense that conflict before the French Revolution well, were you know kind of isolated affairs that didn't affect the the societies as, as a whole, right. So you have much smaller forces, uh, you know the conflicts with the, for, for the kind of obvious, clear, uh, dynastic or political uh, goals now the French Revolution is is different in this because in, in that it mobilized far greater percentage of the population in, in, you know if you read the text of the en mass decree it talks about young men registering and serving children being partic- you know participating in the in, in helping kind in in in, product, in production and manufacturing women, uh, kind of uh, uh, supporting the uh, home front and the, even the elderly uh, kind of uh, providing that moral uh, boost and, and kind of inspiration and leadership for, for the population. So it, it's a more f- encompassing vision of nation at war. And it is very difficult to defeat uh, an entity like this. Uh, and, and France shows that. The, you know with this uh, that they are as a nation that can mobilize greater manpower that can put greater government controls on the on economy uh, and armed with an ideology uh, that it it can overrun uh, uh what we will you know can, can they call the old regime forces it doesn't mean that the old regime armies were inherently weaker or inherently kind of in you know, the destined to lose not at all the fact That it took a decade for the revolution to prevail over the old regime, right? Until eighteen o two, when the revolutionary wars are formally over, testifies to the resilience of the old regime. But it is a it is also a a conflict in which the old regime has to respond, has to kind of tweak itself. Uh, Napoleon then, as a kind of to move away from structural issues to more individual issues, Napoleon whether you like him or not, you know, even his greatest critics admit that um, he was a brilliant, brilliant individual, very capable, workaholic, uh, a, a, an individual who could multitask like unlike anyone you really can can you know encounter in, in pages of history books. Um, you know his ability to control at the height of the empire a, a virtual continent. An entire continent before the time of phones and internet and mass, right, and instant communication is just staggering. And, and Napoleon does play an important role because of his sheer brilliance on the battlefield. I mean, uh, it, it's hard to imagine, uh, kind of uh, France going on a rampage as it did in 1805 to 1809 period uh, uh, without Napoleon because he brings so much. At, uh, to the table, Wellington. I think has that famous statement that Napoleon was equal to forty thousand men on the battlefield, right? And that he brought so much to the table through. Uh, um, and and um, the interesting thing is that Napoleon is not necessarily the only one uh, that France had. In fact, that revolutionary decade produced a number of brilliant uh, military commanders uh it, it produced a number of uh, uh talented men in bureaucracy and finance in fact one of the books that I want to write and that's part of that kind of economic side of the history is is a is a is a brilliant financial wizard uh, that as far as I'm concerned essentially bankrolled napoleon for most much of his reign and most crucially ensured f- uh, rapid French reconstruction in the post napoleonic era it, so it, it's it's dealing with these individual agencies that also makes this period fascinating because you you, you find the characters
0: that are simply uh, amazing. I wonder what you think of this, but it seems to me you know I'm in uh, I'm in tech circles, and it seems to me that if Napoleon was alive today, he'd be a <laughs> you founder, know, as you mentioned. Uh, um, the, I love that <laughs> the, the long hours, the, yeah. the, the ability to micromanage and to, uh, multitask the, um, obviously the leadership yeah. and the, uh, ability to inspire. And then also, uh, most importantly, maybe the, um, the, 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 sort of the risk, uh, the risk taking, uh, there, right. Where you, if you see something, well, I mean, a startup founder has to because they're probably going to fail. So yeah. they're just trying to maximize yeah. the expected value. Um, like increase the odds that you have a true company. <laughs> Yeah. not necessarily that yeah. you have make any money not necessarily increase the odds, you make some money yeah. uh so um d- yeah just the risk-taking uh, especially it seems to me that uh, w- w- what do you think about this would napoleon yeah. i don't know become the ceo <laughs> yeah, yeah, of a company I'll, like tesla i love the vision
1: of napoleon as elon musk right <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. there's a uh, there is a fascinating uh, movie. It's, it's a kind of light comedy uh, called Emperor's Clothes" that envisions Napoleon escaping from San Helena Island in disguise, uh, leaving a, a double. And then before he can return to France, his double dies and he's buried with all the honors. And then real Napoleon finds himself caught in this kind of conundrum of trying to prove himself. And what he does, he, he starts a business in Paris of selling bread and, and using his... Military genius kind of strategy. Oh, wow. He uh, he, uh, bec- you know, comes to dominate the baking industry, baking <laughs> business in Paris. So Napoleon, yes, <laughs> somebody already envisioned him as the startup guy.
0: <laughs> oh, wait, well, what? Was uh, Emperor's he is? new clothes. Uh, oh, in a wonderful Yen
1: uh, home, uh, uh, reprising the role of Napoleon, and he's quite good at it. And uh, uh, so I, he does have a, m- a mindset for that. Um, Napoleon has ability, well, first of all, let me put it, he, by nature, he was a very gifted man uh, with the almost photographic memory. So he retained minutiae of detail. And I've spent better part of a quarter century examining his documents and going through the archives and kind of dealing with the paperwork that he left behind. And it's prodigious. Uh, we just finished uh, a collective effort of publishing a uh, kind of compilation of his uh, uh, personal letters, and we we had to stop at forty four thousand, and that doesn't account for the government decision, the government paperwork that he pre, you know reviewed and then signed on, and you know in in when in my books on eighteen twelve you kind of see him uh, you know deep in Russia, he's governing empire that stretches from Spain to Poland and from Denmark to to Croatia, right, and he deals with minutia of these details, so. He would have been, in that sense, a micromanaging CEO. I, again, that's—I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing because it—it it, it has its its pros and cons. But he was
0: a microman. I mean, have you seen the videos? Yeah. Have you seen the videos of Elon Musk uh, <laughs> going through the show of these uh, that's the, what I'm the, his, like, Tesla plant, and then also like the ra Yeah, that's
1: exactly what I'm saying. Napoleon would have been that. And the worst thing is that I don't know how good Elon's memory is. Napoleon's is brilliant and he would be kind of oh, on a page of this score, you know, footnote that <laughs> you found you found Yeah, there is a fascinating moment when uh when he's in Moscow, uh he actually noticed that a small battalion was sent on the wrong road in the countryside in central Italy. <laughs> Who does that kind of thing, right? <laughs> the main, they're kind of keeping that um that that uh, level of, of uh of detail or As an emperor, he actually uh, supervised what we can say, I think, a modern police state. Uh, The the extent of the police surveillance of the French population is stunning. And as part of it, what is interesting is that he uh, he required weekly reports on what people, average people, kind of common people would say in the streets and police agents would compile these reports from all across France and he would receive digests. So, on top of everything else that he would be doing, he would sit down and kind of going through and, and learning what Alex said on Thursday and what Warkech said on Friday, right, and this expression of public uh, public sentiment. Um, so, no, he, he had uh, all the preconditions for it. And, uh, kind of at the last point, he loved technology. And, and he he supported technology he'd support for example he was the one who uh, set up prizes for technological improvements that benefited the uh, french military for you know it's a famous story of uh, him uh, right uh, kind of uh, uh, setting awards for developing new ways of preserving food which led to conservation you know the uh, kind of uh, jars uh, that we are now consuming right it actually come from the Napoleonic era or it is Napoleon who, for example, conducted or supported experiments on developing submarine technology. In fact, in the middle of Paris on the Sand River, they tested submarines. Now, it didn't work out and uh, the submarines were leaking, so he didn't adopt it. But nonetheless, it, it shows his willingness to embrace it, this technological development. He tried to stay abreast of it also.
0: Yeah, it's similar with, um, I, I think, many other important leaders in history. I think uh, Churchill was a big... Um, he 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 was a big aviator and i think he uh, he, he crashed uh, at least once and also he he saw the importance of tanks early on i think while he was in um india or something um so um yeah that's very interesting now you mentioned earlier that uh, the, the this era in history in france brought forth a lot of young uh, great young leaders and a lot of young talent Um, Was it just that the old people got killed during the revolution, (laughs) or uh, was there something else going
1: on? Um, No, not necessarily. No, revolution was bloody, but not that bloody. Um, No, there is. um, uh, The revolution was about opening careers to talent, and I think that's one of the great legacies of revolution and Napoleon, in that they created a system that valued merit. Yes, connection still, you know, still played a role. I mean, it's a, you know, if there is one constant in the inconstancy of human nature, and that is that you know, the nepotism and corruption stays with us. Uh, but to a far greater degree, uh, merit played a role. And so that see, you see that uh, in, in the people Napoleon uh, promoted and surrounding himself with uh, were, again, uh, there, the, 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 his cabinet is, is quite capable. Uh, and, and he stays so throughout the empire, and not just in military, as I said, but it's in finance and in administration in, in science. Uh, it's the ability to uh, for a person from a humble background to go to a school, to distinguish himself through his through his and, uh, and at this time it's it's largely his, right? the women were not given the equality uh, through his talent and, and merit and, and rise to the top that's what matters and that's is what is missing i think in many other areas of europe at this time in parts like in spain and in, in southern italy in, in austria and in, in, in russia there is a far less opportunity for a commoner to to rise to the top um, uh, but uh, napoleon makes sure that by the time he's he's gone that the system is already entrenched that yes monarchy will be restored bourbons will be back but even bourbons will have to Accept the charter, this constitutional arrangement. Uh, 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 one of the principles of which will be equality before the law, will be this acceptance of careers open to to merit.
0: What happened to this um, uh, this model of the sort of enlightened uh, despot? It seems that that's more less common today. Maybe the most recent one would have been somebody like Li Yu, uh who is a similar model to mm-hmm. Napoleon. But what w- what happened to figures like this in uh, in our government? Um-
1: so in my in, in my own research and certainly in this book, I I'm making an argument, um, not necessarily an original argument, but I certainly am I'm a big proponent of it. That Napoleon is not necessarily the child of revolution. Now he's a product of the revolutionary circumstances, but he does ne- does not necessarily represent revolution as such. To me, as I mentioned in the book, he's the last of the enlightened despots, because much of what he tried to create, establish, right? much of what he tried to introduce, equality, but also order and efficiency. These are not necessarily the revolutionary ideals, but these are ideas that other enlightened despots, including uh, Frederick the Great, including Joseph II of Austria, right? tried also to various degree of success implementing in their countries. but Napoleon I think is the last of them, and probably the most successful in in, in that his system uh, survived. And the reason why he's most successful and Frederick or Joseph is be, is because of revolution. Okay, now Napoleon did not support the radicalism of revolution, and we we see that throughout his life. That you know, even as a young man, when he witnessed revolutionary uh, events in Paris, that he consistently came out. Against or, 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 or expressed opinion against the radicalism of the crowd, uh, he and, and and that to me is, is 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 kind of an element in in his mindset that tells that he is not a you know revolution on horseback as such but enlightened despotism. Um, once he passed away, right? Uh, once he's you know off the historical stage even though we are not talking about the enlightened despotism as such, but the core of it still is there. It's the government trying to bring about changes, government bring about standardization, bring about efficiency. Now, it is not done as overtly or as, 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 as acutely as Napoleon did, it, uh, but that's because circumstances have kind of changed and evolved. But we see still see, for example, Prussian development in eighteen twenties and thirties that are part of that are kind of uh, uh, what would, would I would say is part of that enlightened rational uh, reform movement, uh, and even later on in in post-Crimean period, uh, Alexander II, the Russian Emperor's great reforms can be perceived to be as part of that steady, gradual introduction of change that. Uh, will modernize the state, so you know. You, you, I think you, you can make an argument connecting those dots.
0: And then, what happened to that 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 former government? It seems that other than yeah, other than Singapore, it's kind of uh, kind of a lost. Uh...
1: No, I mean, I wouldn't say. Th- uh, um, would you consider, for example, Soviet state as as that? Because it is a statist, it's a statist approach that is ushering in rapid transformation of society. Um, I think it evolved. it's changed its nature. Um, Singapore is a unique case in that it was uh, it it was both kind of liberal but also uh, you know authoritarian in that sense, right? It kind of controlled liberal environment. Uh, But Soviet system was authoritarian but more radical in its in its transformations. Uh, So uh, it's, I think, it's a part of evolutionary process of 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 what's happening. So not necessarily that it's withered away and and disappeared. Um, You certainly can, for example, make a case for some of the uh, Latin American examples where this enlightened, you know, kind of enlightened reform movements led, spearheaded by an individual, uh, might be um, might be
0: still relevant. And then uh, this is the question I meant to ask you earlier, which is when we were talking about how this uh, was a unique time in terms of giving these talented young people um, access to positions based on their merit. Is, is that possibly one of the advantages of war, which is that you have to, uh, if if the weak perish, then... Um, the, the the nations are have a very strong incentive to um, make sure their systems and their government are as efficient as possible i if you look at uh, let's say uh, um the us it's still a meritocracy maybe uh, maybe in the in, in like private markets but it, there's uh, the the average age of congressmen and presidents <laughs> seems to keep increasing, and maybe that has something to do with. Uh, it's not like titles of nobility uh, anymore, yeah. but it is a greater and greater levels of their accreditation. Um, is, is this one of the defenses of war, which is that it forces countries to become more efficient? If they no, need I to think win. that's
1: a, uh, I think that's a challenging to- uh, question to 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 deal with in a sense because uh, that you know in the late nineteenth century. You know, social Darwinists, for example, argued that war was a, a great purger of societies that rejuvenates it. So, and I'm not sure that we want to kind of go back to that, to that, to that argument. Uh, I, you know, the war. I mean, the sheer nature of the war is that that it makes things possible that in peacetime would be unthinkable. It is a great. It it has a great homogenizing effects. It suppresses some of the. Uh, sharper edges, or in some areas it actually makes those sharper edges even more pronounced. And certainly in, when we talk about the French Revolution, for example, without the war, the revolution would not have radicalized as rapidly or to the extent that it did. Right? It, without the conflict in, that starts in 1792, France would have, it's my argument, would have continued on the path of a gradual reform movement uh, towards the constitutional limited monarchy rather than rush towards the radical republicanism, terror, and violence, which then beget more violence, more cycles of uh, political instability, and ultimately led to military dictatorship. That's where the war is is crucial. And certainly within that context, right? in in, in the context of war, there are a lot of things that revolutionaries uh, thought were justifiable for example, suspension of habeas corpus, for example, uh, arrest and persecution of their political uh, uh, opponents, but also instituting great government controls. Think about law of maximums, for example, of the the Jacobins introduced uh, during the terror. Uh, All that is in the context of that fear, of that anxiety, of that emergency situation that the war cultivates. That's where I I, I see the impact of it. And now, of course, the war also creates conditions where um, bright, talented, however you want to, you know, whatever adjective you want to put it, individuals have an opportunity to distinguish. Now, for example, you know, kind of to go back to what you said um, about the war being this kind of great purger, it certainly uh, it had a role in in weeding out many officers in the French Corps. Some, many of them, immigrated, left the army. Some of them. Uh, failed in the tasks that revolutions, the revolutionary government set for them and were uh, punished dearly so for it. We have several cases like uh, General Kustan or uh, General Borne and others who failed to achieve the mission that the government set for them and they were recalled and uh, condemned and executed for it. And so it certainly creates uh, this environment in which you have to you have to deliver, you have to be at your best, uh, or you, in an environment in which uh, people who are willing to take the risk are pushed f- uh, forward. And that's, in many respects, how Napoleon got his start, right? In 1793, he's a lowly nobody in the French uh, um, army, and yet he's the one who is willing to take charge of artillery command in, in the town of Toulon, which is besieged by the army. He comes out with a plan, that uh, brings the city to, the, uh, the, uh, to its knees, and the rest is history, right? And, and all is done within, within this war environment. Um, who knows how things would have turned if there was no war and whether Napoleon would have been able to distinguish himself, or the other generals like, uh, that, that went on to make great careers
0: it seems that one of the reasons that the, uh, the, the, the revolutionary and the ideas spread a lot was that also at the time that France was the seat of, um, uh, seat of intellectual, uh, discourse, um, at the time. To, why, why was that? You know, I mean, maybe today, uh, America has that sort of cultural influence that, uh, France had at the time when you read like war and peace, <laughs> yeah, you know, the, yeah. all, all the elites in Russia right. are talking in French, What 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 gave France its cultural dominance? Um, That's a
1: longer uh, kind of structural, uh, historical process. Um, You know, we can go back to 17th century and see the the rise of dominant uh, France as a dominant uh, both uh, political entity in Western Europe and a cultural kind of entity in in, in Europe as a whole. I think it's a creation of Louis XIV's era, the 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 grandeur of the French monarchy, the opulence, the luxury of it, the the diversity and the richness of, of French offerings. Uh, and of course, you know, this is where I think it gets really interesting in the sense that uh, France is oftentimes envisioned as an absolutist uh, monarchy with kind of tight controls and everything. But on the other hand, uh, in the 18th century, we see a diverse range of opinions uh, expressed within France by the French writers. On one hand, you, know, you can have, you, you can find And anti-Enlightenment writers, but alongside you will see Voltaire, you will see Rousseau, or the less known ones like Holbach, who was an atheist who was writing critical works against the organized religion and envisioning these technocratic utopias. Um, So uh, that is a unique circumstances that France was able to to craft and cultivate uh, that other countries Were unable to replicate, or were able to replicate to a certain to a lesser degree. I think the other country that was successful in doing it, of course, Britain, but uh, uh, you know, which which had a very vibrant and 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 rich intellectual life at this time.
0: I I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, So, is there um, uh, the book is the Napoleonic Wars: A Global History. And um, yeah, if, if you wanna mention your Twitter handle. Um, it's just, a, a, yeah, my my uh,
1: first name and uh, last name. So it's pretty
0: straightforward. If you can spell my last name, because it's,
1: <laughs> you'll find me. <laughs> you know, when
0: I, when I was doing research for the book, um, there were many times when I had to like look up your, I was like maybe look, trying to look up older interviews or something, and every time I had to go to Amazon and like make sure I copied yeah. the name right. My students um, call me
1: Dr. M, yeah, then- which uh, which make me uh, kind of character from the James Bond movie, but it's easier for them to recall <laughs> yeah. to remember it. <laughs>
0: sure. <laughs> um, yeah, and then, uh, yeah, a, a, any other, uh, I don't know if there's like a, a some uh, final note or some final point that you want to close on, uh, something that stuck out uh, from the conversation? No, I think, from the uh,
1: book? you know, th- th- this book represents kind of a, a, a humble effort to showcase what history can do in 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 modern context and that is to move away from traditional boundaries to to adopt a more a wider lens at looking events more transnational more comparative that uh, it, it's perfectly fine to to do a national histories and to kind of look at the historical developments of a particular uh, country but to me it is far more rewarding to to see how countries developed in relationship with each other, how events in one part of the world reverberates in another because um, the more you know, in in our day in nowadays we live in such an interconnected world that it, that transnational and comparative approach is absolutely essential to your success in, in really in any field of, of, of career that you pursue and certainly in in politics and business and, 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 and law. Uh, and so I encourage um, uh, your listeners to, to pick up books uh, like that, you know, books written with the global history in, in mind um, and, and broaden their horizons.
0: From, from the little history I have read, usually it's like a biography or something. And you, you really do miss the global implications of the decisions that are being made and the changes that are happening. Um, so, it, it was super interesting to get that uh, that um, total perspective. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a super fascinating book, and this is a super fun conversation. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, thank you for the opportunity.
0: I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did and want to help support it, the most helpful thing you can do is share it on social media and with your friends. Other than that, please like and comment on YouTube and leave good reviews on podcast platforms. Cheers, and thanks for watching.